This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. seem funny under some circumstances. I not, thought so. It was, from this vantage point, not real funny. Um, do you guys mind if we start all over? Just, yeah. just, yeah. Right, we're going to wipe the slate clean, okay? I'm going to go back out and I'll enter to some more appropriate music and if you guys like, you can sing along, okay? This will just take a second. All right. All right. <laughs> Chance Logan's at your guest speaker. Uh, <laughs> Sam, can I step in front of this thing, or is it necessary? There's a lecturer always have to be behind here. You can stand on top of it. On top of it? No, I don't think you have to. Okay. I may move around. I'm, I'm, You're bigger I, than anybody else here. We're not and surprisingly agile for a guy my size. And uh, <laughs> anyway. all right. Um, hey, this is uh, a thrill to be here. Uh, it is a very prestigious thing to be here at MIT, although. As I mentioned in one of the classes that I lectured in earlier, uh, in order for something to be really prestigious, it's probably necessary that people actually know the prestigious event is going on. WWE, I don't mean to complain about them, uh, but uh, when I was called today to, to find out, I mean, I have to find out, hey, do you guys need me in Italy in a few days? Like, that's just a, a normal question. You guys need me in Italy this week? And uh, because I had an important personal event I could attend in, in Richmond, Virginia. And they thought it might be nice to record that. That I'm going to be honored and something's really uh, special to me. Uh, but it's Monday night, the day of the show, and therefore they might not be able to get a camera crew there. So I said, well, I'm at MIT lecturing. Why don't you get a camera crew here? And they said, you're at MIT? I said, oh, God, I know it. <laughs> I know it's on the website, but it, you know, to me, this is an event. This is one of the top schools in the country, and WWE is looking, you know, to be embraced by the real world after getting 80,000 fans at Ford Field and after landing a couple of big corporate sponsors and making a national news with the Donald Trump uh, battle of the billionaires with Vince McMahon. It would seem like they'd go out and try to embrace an event like this. Uh, 
But uh, I understand a few people from the world of uh, the internet are here reporting on what they uh, hear. Is that true? You don't have to raise your hands. But uh, JR wants all of you to know. <laughs> just, no, I just uh, feel free to report the truth. Uh, luckily, <laughs> luckily, I called in a favor at the White House and I had Scooter Libby leak the date of my speech. So uh, <laughs> we have a, a few extra people here. Uh, you know, when I showed up, I couldn't help but notice uh, when I pulled into MIT in my long, sleek, burgundy, Chevy Venture used minivan uh, that there was a kid, 15 or 16, maybe a little bit older, little, little bit on the dirty side, um, but he was, had to be the world's biggest wrestling fan. And he had the biggest smile on his face when I opened up that door. And it seemed to me that as soon as he noticed that it was actually me, that smile got a little bit smaller. Like he went from smiling like this to kind of looking like this. And he said, I said, hey kid, how you doing? He goes, hey, hey mate, how's it going? I said, it's going pretty good. I said, uh, why the sad face? He said, oh, it's, it's nothing. I said, well, you, come on, you know, I've been on your TV set for years. You can tell me anything. <laughs> he said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. And he goes, well, it's just when I heard that a WWE superstar was showing up at MIT, I was kind of hoping it wouldn't be you. <laughs> that kid here? No? So I said, oh, oh, really? And he could tell, I guess, I was a little bit hurt. He goes, no, no, it's not that I thought you were overrated and that you had to use tables and chairs and barbed wire to make up for the fact that you really couldn't wrestle much. <laughs> I said, oh, I said, well, that's... That's nice, kid. I said, why don't you just run along to your mother? And the kid said, he said, I don't live with my mother. I should have just kept walking, but I said, oh, why not? He said, because my mother beats me. And I said, uh, what about your father? And he said, I don't live with him either. And I said, why? And I shouldn't have said why, but I did. And he goes, because my father beats me. I said, oh, man. And he said, you see, Mick, that's it. When I heard a WWE superstar was coming to MIT, I was hoping it would be Al Snow. And I said, I said, Al Snow? I said, listen, I know you've had a hard life and your mother beats you and your father beats you, but why in the world would anybody want to live with Al Snow? And he said, because Al Snow's never beaten anybody. I do. Alright, I you guys like that? Alright. I've told it a couple times over the years. This is my here's my cheat sheet so I know what I'm gonna talk about tonight. And apparently on my sheet it says Vince slash testicles. <laughs> Anyone know? Oh are they the only kids here? You had to ruin it for all of us, didn't you? All right, uh, all right, okay. Um, I may occasionally, during the course of this extensive lecture, ask them to put the earmuffs on, okay? Uh, how old are you guys? Five? Eight? And those are ashes on your forehead? Or is that a DX symbol? 
Oh, is it DX symbol? Okay. It's a tattoo? DX? All right. Ash Wednesday's over anyway, right? All right. Um, yeah, it says bench slash testicles. Um, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, I, was, I actually wouldn't be here if it had not been for a book I wrote in 2001 called Foley is Good, in which I addressed some pretty severe claims uh, coming not only from the national media, but from a group called the Parents Television Council. And they were saying that our show, SmackDown, I mean, I, I guess they thought Raw was even worse, but that was a cable show, that SmackDown was uh, the, uh, I guess, the most disgusting, vile, offensive show on network TV. And among the reasons they said that was uh, because of the, 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 the harsh language, uh, the sexual uh, references, and, uh, and the violent content. <coughs> And I, when I, as I got into learning about this study that they had done, and I'll, and I'll explain how I got fully into this by way of an Indiana University study in a couple of minutes, but uh, when I first started hearing about them actually counting the sexual references, uh, I thought it was a little foolish because a, a sexual reference, like if you say, I'm going to kick your ass, which is a wrestling standby, that could be considered a threat of violence, right? It could be considered harsh language, or it could be considered sexually suggestive. Um, although I don't think anyone's personally found my ass to be sexually suggestive. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I thought back uh, to, to some of the times that I had used uh, euphemisms for you know, the T word, uh, or used the T word itself. And I thought, you know what, it's not fair because there are times when, you know, sexual language like that can be downright, it can be cute, you know? Like, for example, did anybody, did anybody see my commercial where I was dropping the names like Katie Couric and, uh, you're right, and uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani and Senator Clinton? And then I mentioned uh, hardcore porn icon Christy Canyon. And as fate would have it, she actually called me while we were filming the commercial and we put her on speakerphone and she said, I can't believe I got him to take my call. And then I looked up and I said, uh, I said, she always calls me. That was cute, right? <laughs> was that not, did anyone see it? It was kind of cute. Like, oh, look at Mick, he's friends with the hardcore porn lady. <laughs> and, then I, and also, you know, and also that was, uh, she was involved in my favorite, uh, um, my favorite political joke. Those of you might remember July 31st when, uh, I was getting ready to do face-to-face -face verbal, verbal battle with Ric Flair. It had been a long time coming. People were looking forward to it. Sure, WWE didn't see fit to mention it once during the first hour and a half of the show, but other than them, people were really looking forward to it. Uh, and I had Melina out there. She was my personal ring announcer, and I thought it would make more sense to talk to her instead of the 17,000 people, like I was having a more intimate conversation. So I told Melina that, there was no reason for Ric Flair and I to, to, you know, to, to be so angry at each other because we were more alike than people might think. And I said, you know, I'd had, you know, I'd been on the cover of the Life section of USA Today and Rick's been in the Charlotte Observer for an embarrassing road rage incident. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I've been interviewed twice by Katie Couric and Rick's been on Good Morning Charlotte for an embarrassing road rage incident. <laughs> Raise your hands if you know the joke, all right? Uh, only a few of you, all right, all right. So the rest of you, I think we'll get a kick out of it. And I said, hey, and the, and the truth is, Ric Flair and I both have very famous friends. I said, Ric Flair is a personal friend of the President of the United States, which is true. It'd be more true to say he was a good friend of the first President Bush, but he does know the current President. 
And then I said, and I am personal friends with hardcore porn icon Christy Canyon. And she got a better response than the president did. <laughs> At this point, I'm going to ask the children to do this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Don't be embarrassed. You think they can handle the truth? You're, you're okay with this? Okay, I don't know. All right, and I said, now one of our friends got to the top by screwing an awful lot of people. And the other one appeared in adult films. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was kind of cute. It caused a big fight the last time I was in Massachusetts was the day before SummerSlam. And one of my relatives, my brother, thought that uh, there was no way that I should be talking about politics on a wrestling show, that no entertainer should use his popularity, his or her popularity, as a forum for their, you know, their personal political beliefs. And he, uh, as evidence, he said that he should not have to listen to Vanessa Redgrave talk about politics at the Oscars. Was anyone here born when Vanessa Redgrave talked about politics? Anyone born before 1977? Okay. <laughs> 30 years ago, but that was 30 years ago, and that was his primary argument. And uh, not only that, he hadn't actually seen Vanessa Redgraves at the Oscars, he'd only heard about it. But uh, I think the most rewarding thing was that next day I got a phone message, and it said, hey, this is your hardcore porn friend, Christy Canyon. You are so awesome and so sexy. So, uh, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> I'd throw that name around a little bit. But now that, now that I've proven that that pornography thing can at times be, be cute and cuddly, now we go to the, the story about the T word. And this dates back, some of you who, who, uh, who were here when Jim Ross spoke. Anyone here when Jim Ross spoke? All right. And I guess uh, beforehand they were playing, uh, uh, did anyone see the video, of the in-depth interview that JR did uh, with me in 1997? Anyone see that? And it was really good. I mean, it was, a, it was one of the uh, big moments of my career because it allowed fans to see me in a different light. I essentially told true stories, but I told them in character. And I was in the process of telling a story about when I was a lacrosse player in high school, although I probably didn't look like a lacrosse player. And I was running laps. I was a goalie in lacrosse. And have any of you ever seen or felt a lacrosse ball? Yeah, hard, right? It's almost like a rock. I mean, it's solid rubber. And, uh, and rumor, the story goes that ne I never played with a cup. You know, just like the story goes that I used to eat a plate of worms before each football game. The truth is, I ate one worm as a 10th grader, and it doomed me romantically for the next three years. <laughs> Same way, the truth is, I didn't, I didn't go without wearing a cup. I just happened to have taken it out when I was running laps and forgotten to put it back in. And so when someone took a shot, they called it a Frasier, and that some guy named Frasier in the 70s had developed these underhand shots that you get a lot more torque and force on. And they, there was a lot of torque and force on that ball as it skipped off the ground and landed in the most unfortunate area of my body. <laughs> and uh, I went down hard and stayed down for a little while. And when I was telling the story to Jim Ross, I kind of broke, uh, I guess, a cultural barrier in that the T word had never really been used on television. Now, there was even a great show called St. Elsewhere that they may have broken the barrier, I'm not sure. You might have to check uh, on that, uh, Professor Jenkins. Uh, but I know at one time they were having trouble getting through the censors because they couldn't really talk about that specific type of cancer and they thought, well, we can't very well say he has cancer down there. So, 
they may have tiptoed over the line, but I burst right through it. Granted, it was on cable TV, but WWE had never ventured that far. So I'm going to give you a little dose of the 1996 uh, Mankind. Those of you guys remember Mankind spoke in 96? It was a little more eerie than the approach I'm taking with you guys. And I was telling the story, and I said, and Jimmy, that ball hit me hard. And I went down, and that next day, even though my testicle was swollen to the size of a grapefruit, I made it back into school. And it was the only time I remember girls looking at my genitalia. <laughs> and for that reason, I consider that to be the greatest day in the history of my life. <laughs> right? Okay. So Vince McMahon, at the time, he was our color commentator. He and JR were the announcers. Vince did color commentator, and he was like a kid with a new toy. He couldn't stop saying the word. And he'd be like, and uh, we'll be looking at another segment of that interview with mankind. Should be interesting, considering the story about his testicle. <laughs> <laughs> he must have said it four or five times. And don't think I wasn't aware that a year later when he became the hated Mr. McMahon, he became the guy with testicles the size of grapefruits. Not me, Vince. But since he signs the checks, I was willing to let that slide a little bit. And he said it so often that people forgot that I was the originator, the instigator, and Vince became the guy with the grapefruits. Now, my wife Colette was pregnant with my son, Mickey. And as a lot of you know, pregnant women have cravings. And at that moment, my wife had cravings for grapefruits. <laughs> and she said, Mick, will you run down and get me a grapefruit? And I did what all good fathers do. I looked at my son, Dewey, who was like nine at the time. And I said, Dewey, can you run down and <laughs> get your mom a grapefruit? Dewey at that time in his diet had had, you know, maybe four or five different foods, chicken nuggets, pizza, uh, peanut butter and jelly, and candy. <laughs> he didn't know what any fruit or vegetable item looked like. And so he said, he said but w w I don't know what they, they would look like. And I said, Dewey, it's really simple. Go downstairs. He goes, okay, go downstairs. I said, open up the refrigerator. He said, okay. And I said, and when you see two objects that look like Vince McMahon's testicles, <laughs> bring him back up. And he looks at me and he goes, Dad, I don't even know what Vince's testicles look like. <laughs> kind of cute, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. But that's why when, when you can sit there, oh, you'll give you another tea, tea story, all right? Going back to the Parents Television Council and the fact that they counted the number of sexual references. Some of you might remember when I was a commissioner, and I had good rapport with a lot of the guys, you know, good... Uh, comedic rapport. And uh, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe are a couple of my favorite targets. Kurt Angle was a favorite target. And Shane McMahon was good. Shane McMahon was really coming into his own as a performer. And on this particular night, uh, he was supposed to battle The Undertaker. He was deathly afraid of The Undertaker, with good reason. And I was trying to give him a pep talk about how sometimes in life we have to pull together and do things, although they may not seem like the right thing to do at the time. They may seem a little scary. So I looked at him, and any of you aware that I used to participate in some rather weird matches in Japan involving, you know, explosives and barbed wire, things like that? Okay. 
And there was one a pretty, pretty famous match where I, I ended up with some pretty, you know, some, uh, some burns and some, uh, a variety of stitches in five different places, and it was a, it was a rough night. Uh, made rougher by the fact that, uh, unlike my opponent, who le Terry Funk, who left in an ambulance to a chorus of Telly, Telly. Anyone know why they called him Telly? It's that R thing over there. The truth. I'm not making fun. That's but they say his name was Telly. I don't know what they called Telly Savalas to tell you the truth. Uh, but they they left. Uh, they left. Uh, Terry left in an ambulance, and there were hundreds of people chanting his name. And since I had won the, uh, the the match to earn the distinction of being the king of the death match, I had to answer questions from the Japanese press, which was pretty prominent at these big matches. And so maybe an hour went by, and, uh, and I remember, you know, I had, it was, like I said, 42 stitches and some burns. And I said to Mr. Asano, who supposedly was worth about a half a billion dollars and was our owner, I said, Asano-san, uh, big crowd, uh, maybe a Scotia uh, bonus cactus son. And Mr. Asano took a 100 yen coin, and he put it in a soda machine, and he pressed a button, and he took that soda and he flipped it to me, and I caught it, and he said, Ha-ha, there, bonus. <laughs> and then I started looking at myself, you know, and, and you can't see here, but there's a pretty bad uh, wound on my palm. My good ear was, was ripped wide open. It required 14 stitches, and I had like six in the eyebrow and seven. I don't know exactly, but it added up to 42. And I was like looking at myself, and I was like, man, I am messed up here. And I didn't know what to do because our boss had already left. And so there was a fan outside named Masa, who I knew from, you know, from being in Japan for a few years. I'd go every week, uh, uh, once, uh, seven or eight days out of every month, I'd go over there. So I got to know a couple of the fans pretty good. And he walked me to the hospital. And, uh, and it, was, it was kind of a weird thing where you, 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 you go on one hand from being a hero and being interviewed and, and, and by, by the press and cheered by thousands and now you're walking to the hospital and getting your wounds uh, tended to. That next day, I will say, was a good moment in my life because uh, somebody had mercy on me and they bumped me up to business instead of being in 26C by the crapper where I usually was. And there was a woman, uh, keep in mind, she probably paid three or four times what coach was paying just to sit in business class. And at about that time, you know, that, uh, that, that, that burn had really started like turning colors and it was kind of brown now. And it eventually fell off and yielded good skin results underneath. From what I'm told, it was not that much different than a chemical peel that people will pay hundreds of dollars for. And I got mine for free and I even got a soda out of it. But that, that skin started kind of falling off. And the lady next to me was like looking like she was sitting next to a serial murderer. And she got up, I, I imagined, to use the restroom. And like an hour later, she still wasn't back. And I saw her in the back of the plane with her head up against the window, like almost shaking like she'd been traumatized. And I just thought, that woman who paid considerable money to sit in business would rather go back there and suffer and sit next to me. Yeah, like I thought at that time, that was, uh, that was the ultimate compliment. But going back to that match, Shane O'Mac was in bad spirits because he thought The Undertaker was going to do him serious harm. 
And I said, Shane, you know, sometimes a man's got to do things that he doesn't want to do. I said, take for advantage that match in Japan. Now let's count the number of references I make to my body part here, okay? Uh, we hold up a finger, right? Now we've got nothing, right? I said, take that match in Japan. I said, did you know on that night, and I looked down and I said, I lost both my guys. One. And Shane looked at me and he said, both of them? Two. And I said, both of them? Three. And then I paused and I said, no, I'm just kidding. There they are, four, you little rascals. Five. Five references. Were any of them really offensive? Anyone think, anyone, even, no. Kids didn't find that offensive. They hear worse things on the school bus, I'm sure, right? Okay. But that wasn't the way that the Parents Television Council or the outside media was seeing us because they were believing all this, you know? If they said that Mick Foley, there were five references made to Mick Foley's genitalia in a 30 second period, people say, oh my God, that's gotta be the worst show I've ever seen. It was compounded by the fact that several months earlier, Indiana University had been commissioned by Inside Edition to do a study on a year's worth of raw episodes. This is going back a few years. And they found that over the course of 52 weeks, there were 157 instances of wrestlers giving the middle finger. 434 instances of the words suck it being used. <laughs> 1,658 instances of wrestlers pointing to their crotches. 128 instances of simulated sex. 42 instances of simulated drug use and 609 instances where wrestlers were being hit by objects such as trash can lids, nightsticks, and mannequin heads. <laughs> so I thought like the rest of the world, wow, what pieces of garbage we must be. But when I started writing Foley is Good, I started, I wanted to go back and relive some of the matches I'd been in. You know, it was a more in-depth look than, than Have a Nice Day, which was a, you know, like a more standard autobiography. And in going through these matches, I couldn't help but notice that there weren't nearly as many of these episodes as had been reported. And this wasn't just reported a little bit, you know. I mean, Sam, Sam Ford could tell you, it was in 37 newspapers that I personally read. It was mentioned, you know, almost every day there was a different news story about the IU study. And it was, it was everywhere. It become accepted as fact by virtue of, uh, of the fact that it was uh, uh, commissioned and completed by uh, Indiana University and published everywhere. So I couldn't help but feel that maybe these findings were a little bit off. And so I took my 20 episodes, granted it wasn't 52, and my 20 episodes were a combination of Raw and SmackDown, and conceivably the time period I was looking at was not quite as risque as the one that Indiana University had covered, but I couldn't, I couldn't help but see that when I went through it that my, my examples were way off. They were way different. I don't have the exact number that I had, but it didn't even compare. The fingers were way down, and that could be explained by the fact that Stone Cold wasn't on the show. Uh, <laughs> But I still have to wonder whether or not, uh, you know, a middle finger is such a bad thing if it is taken from being a sign of abject hatred to a sign of brotherhood and unity, right? To the point where when Stone Cold would drive down the road, people would see him and give him the finger, and he'd give him the finger back. And it was like, yes, he likes us. He's giving us the finger. 
So I, I, I decided to call the, the professor at Indiana University, who now regrets his 15 minutes of fame, from what I'm told, and regrets it more by the fact that I kind of extended his 15 minutes of fame. And I thought, you know what, I'll call the guy five times, um, and then I'll just simply write, I tried several times to contact Professor Gans, but he was unavailable for comment. I ne never even dawned on me that he would call me back, but he called me back. And he was nice about it. I said, yeah, my name is Mick Foley. I said, uh, you know, uh, you may recognize me. I wrote a towering New York Times number one bestseller a couple <laughs> of years ago, and I'm working on a follow-up book, and I'm interested in talking to you about your study. And he said, okay, that'd be fine. And I said, uh, well, Dr. Gans, I said, uh, I did a study of my own. And he said, oh, really? I said, yeah. I said, uh, has no one else conducted a similar study? He said, not to the best of my knowledge. I said, okay, yeah, that's a little bit odd. I said, but I'd like to talk to you about how you reached your findings. He said, all right, that'd be fine. I said, uh, for example, uh, the 609 instances of, of a wrestler being hit by objects. I said, would you only count the original act, or would you count, for example, if it was shown in B-roll footage as a, as a video replay? He said, no, if it was on there, I would count it. And I said, oh, okay, and I started writing down his quote. And he said, well, wouldn't you? And I said, I'm not sure. I said, let me ask you. I said, you know, if a wrestler was coming out to the ring and uh, they were being shown, there was footage being shown of them being hit in the head, I said, would you count that? And he said, yes, I would. And he said, would you? I said, well, I don't know. I said, for example, if I was being asked to count how many home runs Mark McGuire hit last year, I'm not sure I would count the replays. And he said, okay. I said, and besides, I said, when I come out, I said, I'm a retired wrestler. I had to retire due to a variety of injuries, some of which were head injuries. And he said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And I believed he was. I said, I haven't actually been hit in the head many months, yet when I come out to the ring on my video entrance, by virtue of the fact that I'm the only guy in the history of WWE to be getting the crap beaten out of him on his own video, right, everyone you know, there are, that I'm being hit maybe 10 or 15 times, would you count that? And he said, yeah, he would. So I wrote, that. that's just a difference in opinion. Now, when it came to the, uh, the, the, the six, 1,658 instances of wrestlers pointing to their crotch, I, I did what I could to try to stick up for our business. You know, I said, you know, there's this one wrestler, and he said, is it X-Pac? And I said, yeah, it's X-Pac. <laughs> I said, he seems to be the predominant guy when it comes to this. I said, I noticed that when he does it, he will give, and I, I, I don't know if I actually said this, but I know I wrote that, Technically, by virtue of the fact that they're chopping like this, you could argue that they're actually pointing away. <laughs> this way and that way. Pointing like this, which is a, a weak argument. But what, what kind of argument can you put up for guys that go like this all day? <laughs> I, I said, but X-Pac tends to point to his crotch in like four or five quick bursts, like doo, doo, doo. I said, would you count that as four or five small acts or just one giant act? And he said, he kind of laughed. He said, ah, I'd count that as four or five acts. I said, damn, okay. I mean, I, to tell you the truth, when I watched him over and over in the video, I was getting sick and tired of seeing him point to his crotch as well. I, he took more pride in that than Kurt Angle did with his, of his Olympic medal, I think. <laughs> but even that horrible gesture can be seen as being kind of cute when you hear about my experience at Disneyland when my wife said, Mick, 
uh, I think Pooh Bear recognizes you, but because he's Pooh Bear, he couldn't say, hey, Mick. And so I turned around. It was obvious that Pooh Bear was trying to make some kind of connection with me. <laughs> and, and Pooh Bear just, just finally went. <laughs> so, so he gave me the old crotch chop. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to put the muffs on. Okay. You know, I'll tell you, I didn't even bring up the suck it thing. You know, how do you justify one, let alone 434? Unless, of course, there's a please in front of it. <laughs> you like that one? Ah, okay. But even that one has a, has a fairly nice story to it in that uh, several years ago when I was at the National... You don't believe there's a nice story involved? With, okay. Um, I was at the National Video Convention in Los Angeles, and this is before DVDs even became prominent, so it was videotapes I was signing. And I had a pretty good, pretty respectable line, but I couldn't help but notice that while I was signing, every once in a while, like a barely clothed woman would run to the front of the line, at which point I would autograph her, her tape, and then she'd disappear behind this curtain. It happened like four or five times, so I asked Hillbilly Jim, who was our video guy, you know, he was the video salesman, I said, Jim, I said, what's, what's the deal with these girls? Anybody know who Hillbilly Jim is? Yeah. Right? But yeah, he's a big old boy, gregarious guy, you know, friendly, and he slaps me on the back, he says, hell, son, they're from the adult annex. I said, adult annex? He goes, they got their own little world going on back there behind that curtain. I said, what kind of world? <laughs> he said, would you like to take a trip? And I'm thinking, man, she's uh, okay, let me see. My wife's 2,000 miles away. How will she find out unless I'm dumb enough to talk about it? <laughs> Put in a book or something. And so I go behind the curtain. And, and it's like this weird potpourri of all these you know, younger stars that I've never seen, adult, you know, older stars who I vaguely recall from my younger days. But, but in a prominent position with this long line is this beautiful young lady, and I don't know if I should say her name or not. Uh, it's Trish Stratus. No, I was no, no, kidding. Um, it was, her name was Janine. Uh, and she used to be one of the most beautiful women in the world, you know, to the point where, you know, you wonder, what is she even doing in this industry? You know, she, she should be on the cover of Co uh, Cosmo or something. And Jim says, hey, you want to meet her? And I said, oh, yeah, okay. And so now I'm cutting her line, but just as I get up to the front, some wild, maniacal wrestling fan comes running over, and he says, Janine, do you know who this guy is? This is Mick Foley. He's done some of the most unbelievable things you've ever seen in your life. He's been thrown off the top of the cell by The Undertaker. He's been blown up in Japan. He's been left hanging by barbed wire. This is the greatest guy you've ever... And so they kind of like let him get out his thing, and he leaves. And I said, geez, who is that guy? And she said, uh, he owns the company. So, oh, I... This is, have any of you ever daydreamed, the men or, or women out here, you know, daydreaming about someone special, like, you know, singing your praises in front, of, in, in front of the girl of your dreams or whatever? Like, I used to have that daydream. I don't know if that's a normal thing or not. But this was actually happening right in front of me. And I was so excited until Janine says, oh, and what company do you wrestle for? And I said, WWF. They weren't WWE then. They hadn't lost that suit to the, those, yeah, the panda people. Yeah. <laughs> And I said, yeah, I wrestled for WWF. And she went, 
ooh, like her nose got crinkled. And she, ooh, I said, what's wrong? And she said, I, I don't let my son watch you because of the suck it. And I, <laughs> and I said, well, that's quite a coincidence. She said, because I don't let my son watch you either. So, so we, we bypassed the suck it thing. Now, you know, I'm getting the feeling, feeling I, might, I might drop an F-bomb here. Am I allowed to do that one time? Just once, one time? Anybody offended by that? All right, I'm gonna work it in somewhere for emphasis. <laughs> because when it came to uh, simulated sex, you know, I, I said to Dr. Gans, I said, uh, I said, I'm a little confused about these 128 instances of simulated sex. And he said, well, there was this wrestler named Sexual Chocolate. I said, I know, I know, the <laughs> transvestite thing, you know, like, uh, all right, I, and that was a bad thing. And my kids, when they were younger, knew that when Sexual Chocolate came on, they had to turn to the channel. Poor Mark Henry. <laughs> Uh, I said, I, yeah, I know that one. I said, but uh, other than that, like, I, I, could, I just couldn't conceive of what a simulated sexual act was. I didn't recall seeing another one on TV. And he said, well, that might be, for example, a girl rubbing a man's shoulder. I said, geez, that's a, that's a little bit misleading, isn't it? And he said, not if it, what's the word? What, not if it was done provocatively provocatively, not if it was done provocatively, remember that. And I said, now what about the simul simulated drug use? And I was trying to think if we had done a storyline where Al Snow was trying to get off heroin or something like that. <laughs> I couldn't remember. So I said like, I said like, you know, that guy Xbox, the guy with all the, the pointing, I said, you know, sometimes like, he will, you know, he'll like put his fingers like this and he'll say that your ass is grass. And I, I think he said, and I've got the lawnmower. Like, I think he said that. I said, would that be simulated drug use? He said, no, no. I said, well, we have another guy who will say, you know, roll the fatty for this pimp daddy, light that mother up and say, pimping ain't easy. You guys remember that? Godfather? And he said, no, no, that wouldn't be simulated drug use, and I said, well, what would it be? And he said, that would be beer drinking. At which point I said, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> there you go. See, wasn't so bad, was it? All right, okay. Usually I try to keep that as a strong action verb, but I used it as a, did you say that? <laughs> Thanks. I used it as an empty, meaningless adjective, but it, nonetheless, it helped out the story a little bit. And I, you know, so I was a little, you know, a little upset because obviously that's an unfair portrayal of what we do in the mainstream media and the fact that it had been picked up. And he said, hey, we, you know, we reported it as alcohol and, and, uh, and drug use. And I said, well, Dr. Gans, I said, you may have reported it as such, but I've looked at a lot of newspapers and not one of them has, and not one of them has it been read that way. And so I decided to do a little bit of homework. I called up my mother. My mother, she's kind of proud, you know, of the stuff I've done in wrestling, but she really loved that first book I wrote. 
And she loved the second one too. And then I dedicated my first novel to her and she went home and read it and never mentioned that book to me again. So going with the, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all adage. But I said, I want you to help me out a little bit. And she said, okay, what can I do? I said, could you tape like a week's worth of General Hospital and Cheers? So my mom taped a week's worth of General Hospital. I decided to see how simulated sexual activity and simulated drug use would stack up with our horrible WWE Raw show. And I found out that uh, there were 1.28 episodes per hour of sex simulated sexual activity, rubbing a girl, rubbing a guy's shoulder on, on Raw, as opposed to 4.2 acts per hour on General Hospital. And who watches soap operas in here? Anyone? No, you guys study hard, right? Okay. Well, you run that wrestling class. That doesn't really count. Uh, <laughs> And I was watching this stuff like, oh my God, you know, uh, you know, uh, first of all, if some woman were to sh pour champagne on the small of my back and lick it off, we would not only lose all our, uh, you know, our sponsors, but we would horrify our audience, you know? <laughs> and, and they did, uh, I mean, they did like the deep extended makeout scenes not seen on WWE with the exception of Vince and his chosen diva at the time. So I have seen a couple long lingering embraces with Vince and Candace. Vincent Trish, Vincent Tory. But, but other than that, you know, we, 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 we stacked up pretty well. And in Cheers, the examples of the, the beer drinking, uh, Cheers, as opposed to our 0.42 examples per hour clocked in at 27 point, you're leaving us? Was it that bad? Oh, whoa, oh, oh, man. Whoa. There's so, so really no way to follow that thing. Right? How the hell are you supposed to follow that? And uh, you know, let me ask you, does anyone have, uh, maybe we'll take a few questions now, and I'll tell, talk a little more, and we'll take a few more questions, and then I've got a couple of uh, little stories and little points I'd like to make. But is it okay? What time do we have now? It is 5.55. 5.55? All right. We'll take a few questions now. Might lead to an interesting story. Then I'll uh, talk a little more, and then we'll take a few more questions. Anyone have a question? Um, I was just wondering about Dave Meltzer and his uh, influence on your career and professional wrestling in general. Well, I don't know if he's been an influence on my. Well, who knows? Uh, the fact that uh, I was mentioned in, uh, I guess, 1988 for the first time in his uh, uh, newsletter may have helped me get my first full-time job because a lot of what Dave Meltzer says. Uh, even though people will, uh, you know, will rag on him in private, in public, you know, I think a lot of his opinions are respected. And certainly being seen and being called, you know, perhaps the best no-name independent wrestler in the country was a, was a big compliment at the time. But uh, other than that, I mean, he, he helped me out uh, in 2001 when I was trying to find, uh, um, you know, dates of certain matches. And he's got, you know, got a real good mind for wrestling history. I couldn't say he's actually been an influence on my career. And as far on the, as on the business, uh, what do you, an influence in what way? I guess you just expose my business uh, a little bit more and be, uh, I, you know, supporting it truthfully. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people would say that, you know, ah, it's, it's no good because it's an expose. 
I don't really see what he does as being an expose. I mean, there are, there are things that I need to know because I've written these, these books. People expect me to be an expert. And for example, like, I need to know what the, uh, what the live gate was for WrestleMania 23. And uh, it's helpful to know, you know what people are, are making, and it's helpful to know what the you know, different people in WWE uh, are taking in on stock dividends. And, and that's the only place you can find that out. So I, I, like, uh, I like reading his thing. I, di I didn't read it for like three and a half years when I was in WWE uh, because it was frustrating to me when I'd get off the road and then read you know, stuff that wasn't flattering to me. And then I signed back up when it was pretty obvious that everyone liked me, you know. So, uh, and I do, I read it more uh, now that I'm not, you know, a full-time wrestler because there's very little in there that's going to hurt me personally. But I think he does a good job. Yes? Um, so I was wondering, for years, uh, one of the things I always noticed is that the guys at the top, obviously, are the ones who can often make the best promos and have the best matches. And I was always wondering why it was that so many wrestlers struggled at doing good promos. And then when they used to have tough enough on MTV or USA or whatever channel it was on, people like Bob Holly and Al Snow, who I never thought of as being good at doing promos, gave these amazing speeches and, and like were cheering these guys and, and would give amazing promos. And I was always wondering why they could never do that on the actual show. Did you just did you just use the words amazing and Al Snow in the same <laughs> sentence? You know what? You were right. He gave impassioned promos, probably because when Al and Bob were on the show, they had something they really believed in saying, uh, and it would be hard to be quite as passionate, uh, you know, for Al because he wasn't in situations that in that brought out probably the best in him. Although at the same time, somebody today in one of the classes was talking about the stuff that I did with Al as being among their favorite moments. And certainly, you know, when Al Snow and I went to Vegas together, uh, you know, I was trying to console him after a long string of losses. Uh, that was some fun stuff. And, and we had good chemistry together. Uh, and I thought Al did do a good job. I mean, the stuff where, the rock, where Al hated The Rock, because, uh, you know, because Rock was never nice to me, but I enjoyed teaming up with Al. And there was one promo that I could not get out because I kept laughing in the middle of it. And it was the easiest promo. It wasn't like it was that in-depth. But Al said, I don't understand, understand why you would like to, you want to team up with Rock instead of me. And I said, Al, it's, it's just that I get a much better reaction when I'm out there with the Rock, you know? <laughs> and I couldn't get it out because it was kind of cruel, but it was also so true. And uh, I, I, I have thought and said publicly that WWE missed a good opportunity to really take Al and make him a main player. Because part of what we do is try to create characters that our audience can, uh, you know, either, either empathize with, like, or dislike. And in this case, you know, people saw that Al was a, a good guy who knew his stuff. They could see when someone got out of line that Al could put very quickly and firmly put him back into place. And I thought he, they could have done a lot more with his uh, portrayal on, on, uh, on Tough Enough. And when it comes to promos and, and the reasons why the old-timers seem to do it better, it's usually because by the time they got in front of a national audience, they had years of experience and had done hundreds, if not thousands, of these promos. I don't even know what I would feel like if I got a call up six months into my wrestling training saying you're going to go out there live and you're going to cut a promo in front of 15,000 people in the arena and millions around the world. If I had no experience and I didn't really feel it and I didn't have a handle on the character, I think that would be a pretty intimidating thing to do. So for example, when I'm asked if I, if I, if I hold any grudge against 
uh, tough enough people? I say no, because first of all, it takes a lot of guts to get out there on a cold call and you know with that it involves 10,000 wrestlers or more you know going out there putting yourself on the line being judged by other people and then competing on television for a prize that is it's not like you're winning the lottery when you win that tough enough you win a developmental contract in OVW worth $40,000 so if somebody's willing to stick their neck out compete with thousands of other people and then go through 13 weeks of training for a grand prize of 40 grand that they have to work really hard for, I don't consider that something, you know, that should be begrudged. It should actually be kind of respected. And I'm glad that I came up the way I did, because even if I had had the good fortune to have been on uh, Tough Enough and won it, which is highly unlikely, um, I wouldn't have been, been able to make much of a, an impact on a, on a national stage. So. Guys like Stone Cold have been involved for eight years before he finally got to WWE. In my case, I've been around 11 years before I got to WWE. So I think in both those cases, more so in his apparently, but in both our cases, we were able to, to make a difference fairly quickly. That's a good question. Uh, earlier, you mentioned that you Oh, oh yeah, uh, you know, yeah, it's actually been said that you put more, uh, you know, into novels, more of your personal life and personal feelings than you would dare put into something autobiographical, and that's, uh, that's probably true, and I was also to take, able to take a lot of what I'd seen on the road over like, you know, a 15-year period and kind of create characters that borrowed a little bit from what I'd seen, because I'd often said that being in WWE and being around the world and wrestling with all different types of groups had enabled me to see both the best and the worst that mankind, the, you know, the group of people, not the wrestler, had to offer. And so, uh, you know, whereas I might not talk about the worst that I've seen in my autobiographies, I could kind of roll different character, different guys I'd met and create little uh, character traits uh, for the books. Which uh, character is more like you, Tatum or Scooter? Oh, uh, Tatum Brown or Scooter? Uh, you know, they're both essentially me. You know, I mean, if you notice, uh, for those, uh, I would ask for a show of hands, but that might be embarrassing. Uh, I'm going to assume a lot of you have read my fiction. Uh, but uh, uh, Andy Brown was the protagonist in the first book, and uh, he was missing an ear. Uh, and the, and the uh, second character, Scooter, had uh, lost his front teeth and had love handles. So, uh, and he wore a flannel shirt and he had long, curly, unkept hair. Other than that, there's really not much of a similarity. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're both, it's essentially me, you know, kind of imagining that I am put in difficult situations. So I, I said this on Conan O'Brien uh, a couple of years ago. I said, you know, like Scooter, I was trying to imagine what it would be like to be a white kid from the Bronx growing up in the, in the 1960s. And for my next book, which I was hoping to write, I was just simply going to imagine that I was, you know, a black woman in the South living in the 1950s. So it's all a matter of imagining you're that character and putting a little of yourself into it. I don't know what this woman's going to look like, but, uh, or even if I'll write the book, but that's a, a thought I've had. Yes? Uh, way back in the day when I was a young lad like these guys old people, yes. wrestling was one hour of Sydney Views television on Saturday morning to get us to go to a house show. Now it's four hours of highly produced primetime television to get us to buy a pay-per-view every month. Can you give us your take on how that's changed the industry? 
And as a follow-up related question, on a personal note, what is the difference for you between a house show and a big pay-per-view? What's my? Um, how does, what's your preparation between a house show sure. and a okay. Well, I'll answer that one first. Um, I haven't done house shows in a long time. I've only had, I think, eight matches in the last seven years. So for me, you know, anytime I get ready, uh, I, I, like, I understand the Carlito match wasn't going to be such a big deal. Then I did one uh, show for my friend uh, Brian's, uh, Brian Hildebrand was a wrestler, a good friend of mine who died from stomach cancer. So I did his memorial show. And I did, I think, a show in England because I was there and they were willing to give me a little more if I participated. So I would have approached those, you know, slightly different. Even though Brian's thing was a big deal to me, there weren't that many fans, and we wanted to make it fun. Whereas when I'm out there for a pay-per-view, and especially in the case of the last, you know, four matches I've done, which were the I Quit match with Flair, not so much the June match because I was just kind of setting the stage for I Quit, but the the match with WrestleMania at WrestleMania with Edge and the Backlash match a couple years earlier with Randy Orton, these were really serious matches. And I knew it would be the only time or one of the few times of the year or the near future that I'd have a chance to, you know, go out there and, and uh, make a good showing for myself. So I took those really seriously, really seriously. And uh, it, it's difficult for me to get in that state of mind because I am not even near that state of mind on a normal basis. Whereas when I was wrestling regularly, it was a fairly easy act to pull off. It wasn't that hard for me to, uh, to go just from being myself to turning it on in the ring because there wasn't that much of a difference. Now there's a, a, a huge difference. And as far as what it's meant to the business, to have it changed uh, from uh, a one hour uh, geared towards uh, promoting house shows to uh, several hours geared towards promoting uh, pay-per-views, it, it is different. It's, uh, it's enabled a select few people, and by few I mean several dozen, to make a better living doing it than they otherwise would have in the old territorial days. But at the same time, there, are, there used to be room for hundreds of people to make a living wrestling in the territories, and that's been whittled down. And there are some really good wrestlers who cannot make a living because they don't have you know, what it is that uh, WWE happens to be uh, looking for. But I think it's caused our shows to become much better. You know, some people will, will look back fondly on the old days, you know, uh, in the, the old WWWF. Uh, but if you were to put one of those shows, shows on the air today, airing from uh, Hamburg, Pennsylvania, or these little places they used to do it, it would look, you know, it, it, it would look positively ancient, and it would look bushly. So there's been a, a changes for the, the better and uh, for the worse, probably. Yes. Oh, great. We'll take these, yeah, we won't add to this. No, no, we'll take uh, these four and these three, and then I may tell a story or two and take a few more questions. Yes? Uh, this is like a dual question, right? A dual, what? <laughs> uh, first, first All right, you know Can you get a cheap pop for my team? Didn't I do that? <laughs> you know, there's, <laughs> there's a reason that I didn't say it's great to be right here in Boston. Because it's, uh, it's not that great to be right here in Boston. No, okay. <laughs> you want me to say, it's great to be right here in Boston, Massachusetts. All right. But that was a forced pop. All right. A cheap pop has to really come from the heart. But go ahead, and second. All right. The second one is, out of all your experience with WWE slash WWF, 
What was your most fun persona? Mankind, Cactus Jack, would you love? What did you have the most fun playing? I had the most fun actually being the latter day Mankind who did the funny stuff with The Rock and uh, being the commissioner. Because when I was a commissioner, I showed up late, I left early, I didn't have to change my clothes, and I didn't get hurt, and we did funny stuff. And I was a pretty important part of the show. Is that a good question, answer? Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right, thank you. Go ahead. I uh, just want to say that I got to have a nice day in uh, fifth grade. My mom had the first kid who grew up. What happened? My uh, mom got me to have a nice day in fifth grade. Christmas and she read the first page and threw it out. Because it said, I think I lost my blanking ear? Yeah. Oh, okay. Years later, she actually didn't throw it out, though. Now, did she read any of the more sensitive parts of the book? Unfortunately not. Ah. I actually had a question about ECW, how they brought it back. Because my take on it is that a lot of the fans watching now aren't the true fans that were watching it years ago. Right. It's a lot different. Just as what you, how you represent the hardcore wrestler. Right. Just what you thought of it today. Well, you know, I, I think if you tried to uh, just appeal to those old fans, you know, you'd, you'd be on a quick course to disaster because even those fans had to eventually move on. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, there, we did have a hardcore audience, and, and I mean, I think at, the, at its best, it did a 0.7 rating. And, you know, you really can't exist with that type of rating. And, and things are different just because, by virtue of the fact that it's, it's a known WWE entity. You're kind of taking that, you know, uh, counter-cultural element away from it, which is what made uh, ECW work. You also couldn't get away with doing that much violence and, uh, and, and having characters that were so cutting edge. And you certainly can't have, you know, if, if a character really got over, uh, they probably weren't going to stay in that format for long. But I, li I like the new ECW, you know. I don't think it's bad. I think it's a good show. And uh, they're still finding their way. And uh, I, I'm attracted to the vampire girl in a very weird uh, way. Uh, I'll be the first to admit it. And you know what, I, I told her, um, she, she heard I said that on an interview with JR. And, uh, and I, I, so I, the night before WrestleMania, I said, you know, I'm not going to give you the name, but I said, there was, I will only say that he's a top guy in WWE. I said, but he came over to me and he said, hey, I heard what you said about Ariel. And I said, oh yeah? And he said, I feel the same way. <laughs> so uh, we had that secret bond and then I finally did reveal the name to her, but I'm not going to reveal it to any of you. Okay, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, what do you think the WWE or any wrestling company could do in, in order to actually achieve that? And do you think it's even possible for? I do think it's possible, and this is, and I actually feel good that uh, they had a meeting and said, you know, that uh, you know some of the bad language has to be toned down, the gestures, and he kind of pointed to Austin. We can't get away with doing those things anymore. If you notice on TV, a few of the divas who were showing a little more skin had to dress a little more conservatively. And, uh, and I think that's great because I always thought our tendency to, you know, push the, the, you know, the boundaries and, uh, and, and try to come, come, come across as cutting edge and trying to be like the cool kid, you know, the cool kids and the shocking kids on the block uh, hurt us because it took away from people's ability to enjoy and focus on the more fun elements of the show. 
And I know that every once in a while we'll have to shock people, but uh, what always bothered me is that inevitably when we chose to shock people, we did it with characters that people didn't really care about who weren't going to draw anybody any money. Now, I'm not saying that people didn't care about Val Venus, but if you're going to go out there, you know, and you're going to, ch you know, chop off his body part and have to enlist John Wayne Bobbitt to console him, then at least do it with somebody, you know, that nobody's going to pay a dime to see Val Venus get his revenge on Kai and Ty. Just like nobody's going to see, pay a dime for Mark Henry to get revenge on a transvestite, you know. Uh, so I think by toning it down and by, by you're, you're, you're frowning like you don't see that. Well, because even before the sex and violence got really big in wrestling, right. there was always this perception by uh, the general public right. that it's like low class and that it's stupid and that, you know, less problems with being fake right. and stuff like that. Well, first of all, they don't have any problems with being fake anymore. More like a general adult on the street will say, oh, you know, that's stupid, it's for children. But then they'll go home and watch the show that night, but they won't admit it to you. So what we need to do is make it acceptable for people to not be ashamed of watching the show. And, and, and it really opened up some eyes when we put 80,000 people into Ford Field, and there's a reason why AT&T is now a corporate sponsor. And it, is a, it's, it will be difficult. It's, it's hard to change the image overnight, but if you, take, you look at the way people uh, look at wrestling now and accept it, as opposed to 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, honestly, you know, who would have thought, not that I need to mention myself in this sense, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Who would have thought that a, a wrestler could write a New York Times number one bestseller? And who would have thought at the time it came out that it would be up there on top of a list that included all the books by the presidential candidates and that of all the books on that list, the wrestlers would have been written by the subject whereas the people running for the most important office in the country would have a ghostwriter doing the work for them. So, uh, you know, times have changed and I, they will continue to change and I don't know if it will be successful, but I think it's a, a good plan to let people concentrate on the positive and to let some other people, let the, you know, let the reality shows uh, have, have some of the more negative elements, you know? Okay. Oh, okay. Um, first of all, let me answer the second question. I would tell them not to do it. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a pretty hard job. Um, you know, the kind of the joke was that, uh, you know, when I was going around trying to learn people's names in 1999 and 2000 that I found out by the time I learned their names, they would probably be gone, you know, that it's a pretty, a pretty high turnover rate when it comes to creative. Um, there are three or four writers who've been there for a long time. So a guy like Brian Gewertz probably deserves a Nobel Prize just for working with Vince for five years. Uh, I couldn't do it. You know, I, I personally like my sleep. Um, the idea of being woken up at 3.30 in the morning by a voice going, hey pal, I've got an idea, is, is not something, you know, that, that, that uh, would excite me. So I would say uh, I wouldn't advise people to do it, but if they feel like that's something they want to do, then go through the normal, you know, uh, process of becoming a good creative writer, of studying the show and then applying the way, uh, the way that people do for uh, a regular job. Or else, uh, no, I'm just going to make some cheap, stupid comment. Uh, 
and I've made enough of those already. Uh, and as far as the, the next five or ten years, who knows, you know? Uh, it's all about getting characters that connect with an audience, uh, you know, like John Cena for, you know, even though some people don't, don't like him, he's connected. I mean, uh, some people come to the arenas to boo him, some people come to cheer him, but he's been able to bring in a new audience, you know. Uh, who would have ever figured you'd see such a resurgence of a guy like The Undertaker, who'd been around for 17 years and is now really at the top of his popularity. And, uh, you know, other up-and-coming wrestlers, whether it be, uh, you know, Randy Orton or whether Johnny Nitro gets a chance to do something and steps up and, you know, and is able to cut promos, you, you can never tell. Uh, Cody Runnels, you know, certainly could be a player, you know, uh, Harry Smith, but I don't, there's no guarantee that just because they're second and third generation guys that they will, um, you know, necessarily make a, a, a huge impact. Okay. Why do you want to be a creative? Uh, I used to think about it too. Okay. Then that's yeah. That's that's probably the, the right advice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Uh, my personal favorite match was you against Randy Orton at Backlash. Oh, th thank you. Yeah. And at, shortly after that, uh, Randy won the world title at SummerSlam. But after that, I thought WWE completely dropped the ball with his character. Right. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was really flattered. I, I caught the red eye home. I, I think we were in Calgary that night at Backlash, 2004, I think. Um, and the next night, I was watching the Raw show, and when Randy went out, people started chanting his name which was evidence that what we had done the night before had worked because there was that question of whether or not he was, you know, a, a tough guy and why landing in thumbtacks and getting hit with a bar bar bat clears that up, I don't know, but that <laughs> seems to do, do, you know, do the case, uh, or be the case. Uh, but it was a couple weeks later um, when I was in New York City, it wasn't a couple weeks, it was like a month later or so, uh, and somebody said, hey, did you hear what happened to Randy Orton? I said, no, what happened? I said, oh, Evolution beat him up. I said, they beat him up? He said, yeah, they left him laying bloody. I said, no, no, because it was like a year and a half early for that. And somebody jumped the gun. Uh, and uh, I guess they ended up doing with Batista what really should have been done with Randy Orton, which is bring it along slowly and build up, you know, ill will between the members of Evolution. And hopefully they learned their lesson. I think they did because uh, if someone had jumped the gun and turned John Cena bad just because three-quarters of the crowd was booing him, uh, that would have been a big mistake. And by keeping him in that same role, first of all, he plays it off really well. And second, you know, they've made a, they've made a ton of money. So I was disappointed uh, with the way they handled that, and uh, hopefully they've, they've learned from it. Thanks. And your Mick Foley shirt's in the laundry, I take it. Okay, I thought so. I Seems to be a lot of that going around. All right, go ahead. I actually had to write a paper on WWE. I want to know first, like, what goes into like making like a character an ego, and how that goes with you know the culture and who you're going after. I feel like sometimes like the character may have like a social commentary or something like that with with how we are in the culture. Um, and the second one is like I'm a college wrestler. And the hardest part is like before a match, like you know, like yeah, oh yeah. What do you, what is your, what do you do to get for me? I, I'm only out there trying to take down someone. You're like going to tax. I went to Summerslam, so I saw you hit barbed wire, and I was like, Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, that pre-match thing, it's a lot like, I mean, I did amateur wrestling, and uh, as you know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty intimidating uh, because it's the only sport in high school where you can go out and lose, you know, get pinned in front of your friends. And in my case, since I was a heavyweight, you know, there were a couple times the match, the whole meet was deciding on it. And, uh, but I, I felt like two of my most important life's lessons were learned, uh, um, one through amateur wrestling and one through a meeting with Vince McMahon. And I ended up getting pinned uh, to lose the meet for us for Ward Melville High School. Uh, and, uh, and I went and I, and I shook the uh, coach's hand and I shook my opponent's hand and then I went down into the wrestling room and I cried for like an hour, you know. It was a pretty, uh, you, you know, humbling experience. But then once that was over, it was like, okay, well, how difficult can the rest of life be? You know, like nothing in life is going to be quite as bad as that moment. And my other big experience is when I went and asked for my release from WWE uh, in 2001. It turned into a pretty uh, spirited shouting match between me and Vince. And once that was over, I was like, man, I feel great. You know, I can, uh, you know, I can do anything. You know, I can, you know, debate foreign policy with the president. You know, I can go to the gym and, well, maybe I couldn't do that, but I could, uh, <laughs> I could do almost anything. So I thought amateur wrestling was a great experience, but it's probably the same as a lot of nerves. You know, you don't want to disappoint people. Uh, it's, it's more nerve-wracking for me now because I know that I can't go out there the next night and, uh, and, and wipe the slate clean and put on a good showing. I know that, you know, I was so disappointed after the SummerSlam match because we had a good match. It was like my last chance maybe to have a great match and I came up a little bit short. And so it bothered me for a long time where I'd be like wake up in a cold sweat and I'd be like, why didn't I do something different, you know? Um, but as long as there's a chance to, uh, to uh, uh, for redemption, you know, the next week or the next day or the next month, it's okay. What makes it tough for me is knowing that every match I have has so much on the line because it could be the last match. But, at the same, but I may just turn around and say, you know what, put, put me in six-man matches, you know? Let me go out there and in the opening of a pay-per-view and do a couple moves. And most of the fans wouldn't care, but I would, you know, I would care. So I'm not sure we'll see that happen either. But thank you for the question. Was that two-parter that I only answered one part of? Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of it is a guy, uh, you know, amplifying his own persona. Which is why, you know, if you see Stone Cold Steve Austin in real life, he sounds amazingly like the Stone Cold on TV. Uh, a lot of the characters are that way. The Rock is just an extension of his character. Um, you know, whereas Mankind in 1996 may have been a stretch for me, doing it in 99, or being the, the commissioner was not a stretch. That was pretty much me, just acting a little s sillier. You know, so the best characters are always an extension of the personality, and that's up to really, um, you know, the writing team can help with good ideas. You know, no matter how strong a character is, if he doesn't have that one or two definitive moments or programs, you know, series of matches with a good opponent, he's not going to go nearly as far. So it's a matter of timing, luck, you know, talent, and belief in one's own abilities, I think. That sound pretty good? Yeah. Okay. Not bad for a guy who's not an MIT student, right? Okay. And the, okay, go ahead. All right, uh, first off, my little sister made me promise to tell you that she wants to wrestle you. She does. So, when I mentioned the, uh, the Taker Hell in Cell match, um, but you know that was intense, and it obviously you know 
repeatedly your career because of the damage that was done. Um, what have you been asked to do that you said, hell no? You know, I, nothing, nothing. Uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> the people saying hell no are usually, usually Vince, you know. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, uh, the, but yeah, I'm more than happy to point out Vince's faults. Uh, if any of you go out and get the hardcore diaries, you'll see I do that you know, frequently throughout the course of the book. Maybe too frequently, as it turned out. But, uh, but from my first day in, I remember Joe Briscoe and somebody else saying, we know you do a lot of things. There may be times when you're asked to do some of that. But until we ask you, please don't do it. And over the course of the next few years, you know, I started doing more and more of it. And then there was the Hell in the Cell episode. And afterwards, you know, I was, real, I was, I was out of it. You know, it was the only time I'd ever been knocked unconscious during the course of a match. And that's where I had the tooth stuck in my nose and I had the big hole under my lip. Uh, and, uh, and, and Vince said, you have no idea how much I appreciate what you just did, but I never want to see anything like that again. So there was never a time when I was asked to do anything that I felt uh, uncomfortable about. I just, uh, also, what was your first experience with something like that? You know, when somebody says, okay, you're going to jump 300 feet down to a table line with a... Well, you know, first of all, I didn't do things like that for my first few years. And I think that's something important that backyard wrestler, wrestlers should consider, is that if I was like the guy they're looking up to, they need to know two things. One is I really was trained the right way. We didn't do any of that for the first couple of years. And secondly, even when I was doing this stuff in Japan and I was, you know, I mean, conceivably the best in the world at that type of thing, like I still had friends who, a friend who worked on the Long Island Railroad was making more money than I was. You know, it wasn't like you hit, you know, if you're the best in the world at being blown up and tied up in barbed wire. <laughs> And, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the funny, the ironic part, or really the surreal part, is before that tournament in Japan, you know, the one where I was given the, uh, the, uh, the, the can of soda as a bonus, was that I was actually having to sell shirts and pictures outside, you know, in the 120 degree heat. And they were playing my music, and they're like, act this on now, now. I was like, hold on, just a few more sales, a few more sales. And I was like, what if this was boxing, you know, and you had, uh, you know, De La Hoya, against Mayweather and De La Hoya's music was playing and it's like, yeah, Oscar will be out in a few minutes, he's at the Polaroid stand, you know? <laughs> so we had to do what we could to, to get by. It wasn't a, it wasn't a very lucrative uh, field, that field of being blown up and, you know, trapped in barbed wire. But nobody, there was never a time when people said, that we want you to do this. I mean, they may have asked me to do things where it was understood that I would do them because they weren't that unrealistic. And like in Japan, when they, you know, I mean, I guess when I was asked to be, participate in a scaffold match in, uh, in Texas, you know, I, I agreed to it. You know, I agreed to it, and that's a match that I really wasn't cut out to do because I wasn't real, like, good even in gym class at doing pull-ups and stuff like that. And so the idea of dangling from a 20-foot structure and trying to land without getting hurt was, was stupid, and I did get hurt. Um, but other than that, you know, uh, I was pretty much on my own, you know. I made my own stupid decisions, all right? No one, no one forced me into them. Uh, what, how are we doing on time there, Sam? It's uh, 6.30. 6.30, we got another half hour? All right, yeah, maybe I'll tell you guys a, all right, I'll tell you a little story. Um, tell you a, a feel-good story. You want to hear a feel-good story? Yeah? Okay. All right, this is a feel-good story. You got a little, this way you can't just say I talked about wrestling, which I know you were going to do, right? Okay. 
But this, uh, uh, this is a story, uh, it's act, this is actually in the Hardcore Diaries, but since nobody read the Hardcore, nobody? Two, four, six. Hardcore Diaries did pretty well. Oh, there it is, right? Uh, four weeks on the New York Times list. Next week it falls off the list. Uh, but four weeks is four weeks longer than most people will ever spend on there, right? Yeah. Did you write one? No? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did, uh, yeah, it did pretty well. So I was happy with it. And the, the cool thing is that even though I criticized the media, and in Foley is Good, I talked about how they misconstrued words and took them out of context and misquoted me. In retrospect, I think I would rather be misquoted than not quoted at all. <laughs> so uh, the, the world did not rush to cover this, even though I thought there were some important topics. And, uh, and the fact that you know, it was my third memoir, uh, on the bestseller list was something I was happy with. And even though I didn't get to talk about it that much in the media, uh, there is a positive because I actually still really like the book. Whereas when I look at Foley is Good, I'm like, I don't want to ever see that book again, you know, because I just talked about it too much. So I'm happy with this. So uh, th this is a story in here, and it concerns a, uh, a kid I met through the Make-A-Wish Foundation named Brian Hopkins. And, uh, Brian had uh, been brought into the world under pretty difficult circumstances in that his mom died giving birth to him and he was one of twins. His brother Jerry was born without, without any physical problems and Brian was a little bit tougher and he ended up with a pretty severe case of uh, cerebral palsy. So I imagine that in, or in addition to the grief that the dad felt over the loss of his wife that there were other issues stemming from trying to raise a severely handicapped child. But I got to know Brian uh, in 2000. I still think when I moved back to Long Island and I made some phone calls to like my local hospital and asked if I could help out and I called Make-A-Wish and asked if I could help out and I called up uh, Six Flags Great Adventure and asked how I could help out there, which really meant can I get in free and get on rides without waiting. Uh, <laughs> so I made some good calls. And uh, I got to know this kid, Brian, over the course of a, a couple of years. I'd go to his house every couple months and I'd watch Raw or SmackDown. And I found that as long as I was in an, uh, uh, as long as I was um, in a wrestling context, whether I was talking about wrestling or watching wrestling, that I really wasn't uncomfortable. Uh, I never answer, uh, asked about what might be considered the pink elephant in the room or the elephant in the room which is the kid's in a wheelchair. You know, I never even asked about his condition. You know, I'd talk about The Rock, and I'd talk about Stone Cold, and I'd talk about SmackDown, and a couple of years went by. I couldn't really say I knew the kid outside of, uh, of wrestling. And then he called me one day, and he said he was going to have a serious spine surgery. And before he went into the hospital, he wanted to know if I would go with him to a New York Islanders game. And so I, I drove over to his house, and his dad, you know, had the specially equipped uh, handicap accessible van. He dropped us off at the Nassau Coliseum like we were going on some kind of date. And we made our way to the, uh, the handicap access seating. And I realized once I sat down that, man, I, you know, man, I was out of my comfort zone. Like, I didn't really know what to talk about, you know. So I just said something stupid. I just said, hey, uh, how's it feel to be part of my posse? Kind of stupid, right? And he goes, oh, good, Mick. And I thought, oh, that was a dumb thing to say. And I'm watching them and, you know, watching the Zamboni go around the ice. And I'm watching the guys do their warm-ups. And then Brian turns to me and he says, Mick. And I said, yeah. And he said, am I really part of your posse? 
And I said, you better believe you are. And what I didn't tell him is I didn't actually have a posse. That, uh, <laughs> by process of elimination, he was my only member of the posse, but he was looking at me such a way that I thought, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna try going out on a limb and I'm gonna ask him about his operation. So I said, hey, Brian, uh, how do you feel about this operation you're gonna have? And all of a sudden it was like his giant weight had been lifted and he started telling me how nervous he was. He was a little bit scared, but he's also excited. So it might give him a better, ch better chance to be comfortable in his wheelchair. And he says, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a, too bad. I've already had my wish granted or maybe some Islanders could come uh, see me in the hospital. And I said, you know, Brian, I said, I work with this other group that, that you know, they sometimes grant second wishes. He says, really? I said, yeah, really? And he gets this far off look on his face and he says like he's looking at, up at the, you know, the rafters and he goes, I'd like to meet Metallica. <laughs> so, so I said, uh, again, I've been over his house by that point maybe six or seven times. I have no idea what his interests are outside of wrestling. And I said, is that the type of music you like? And he said, yeah. I said, you like that heavy metal stuff? And he said, yeah. I said, do you like Twisted Sister? And then he looks at me, he goes, do you know Dee Snyder? Because he knew, I guess, that Dee Snyder was a Long Island guy. And as it turned out, you know, I did know Dee. You know, he's one of my few, re you know, real friends, you know, who are famous. And, uh, you know, when you're about around wrestling and show business, you have a chance to bump into famous people. And if you talk to them for more than 10 seconds, you tend to claim that they're your real friends, you know. But the truth is, you know, they're not really your friends. You know, like Katie Couric. <laughs> not really my friend. <coughs> Although I guess if I had a chance to get to talk to her a little more. And... <laughs> never mind, never mind. Uh... But I, had a, I do have a couple of friends, uh, famous friends. Sarah Hughes, the Olympic figure skater, she's uh, one of them. Uh, hardcore porn icon Christy Canyon, that's another one. <laughs> do you think she would appreciate you guys laughing at the mention of her name? Do you want me to call her and find out? No, all right, all right, okay. <laughs> Uh, and Dee Snyder, and as it turned out, Dee didn't just, owe, like, he owed me a favor, and it wasn't a, hey, stop off at Dairy Barn and pick up a quart of milk favor, it was a, hey, uh, I do a radio show in Hartford, and I know it's three and a half hours away from your home, but can you go there and do my show for four hours for free while I star in a VH1 movie about my life, you know, with the Senate uh, obscenity hearings of 1990? Remember? Somewhere around there. Uh, so as it turned out, he owed me big time. So I said, hey, you know, I, I do know Dee, and uh, maybe he can give you a call in the hospital. So we get back into his dad's van, and Brian says, Dad, Mick knows Dee Snyder. And his dad said, you know Dee Snyder? <laughs> he was like a, 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 a maniac fan from back when Twisted Sister used to tour and do the clubs in Long Island. And, he said, and Brian said, yeah, and Mick said he's going to see if Dee can, can, can give me a call. So uh, a week or so later, you know, I, uh, I have this plan. Brian's in the hospital, and I go by to pick up Dee Snyder. And Dee comes out of his house, you know, and when we make our way uh, across the lawn of the hospital, we're walking through the halls, like, it's clear that even if you don't know who he is, you know he's somebody. You know, his hair is long and blonde. He's got, a, like, an ankle-length leather duster. He's wearing snakeskin boots almost up to his knees pair of black leather pants that I wouldn't be caught dead in. <laughs> He's somebody. If you don't know me, I could conceivably be the guy showing up to fix the plumbing. But Dee Snyder, <laughs> Dee somebody, you know? 
So I said to Dee, I said, just wait a couple minutes here and I'll be right out. So I walk into Brian's room and I swear to you, he's playing the best of Twisted Sister. It's two songs long. No, no, I'm not kidding. No, kidding. kidding. And I talked to him for a couple of minutes and he says, uh, and he finally goes, yeah, I was kind of hoping that Dee would call. I said, well, you know, they're kind of busy with that, uh, you know, comeback in Korea. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he'll get around to it. And, like, he's excited to see me, but, I'm, you know, the thrill wears off, believe me. You can check with my wife on that one. Uh, the thrill, <laughs> thrill wears off. And then I said, hold on a second, I, I forgot something out in the hallway. And so I walked out, when I came back in, there's D. Snyder. And that's when Brian goes, he goes, oh, my God. And I felt like, you know, although I'd been a part of some pretty good reactions in my wrestling life, that this was among my best reactions, even though it wasn't for me, because I created it, like I made this wish happen. And then D, to his credit, he wasn't like just showing up like that guy on the ESPN Playmaker show did. Anyone see that? Where the guy showed up because it was in his contract, and while he was there, he kind of swiped the kid's pain medicine. Anyone see that? No? I think Rush Limbaugh did similar things uh, <laughs> when he was visiting young conservative fans in the hospital. And... No, nah, I'm, I'm kidding. I doubt Rush visits kids in the hospital. <laughs> uh... <laughs> right, thank you. All right, cool. Cool. All right. All right, I may tell you one last politi political story before we go. Um, and, but he turned around and, he, and he, you know, he sat real close and he went through these glory days of you know, being in Twisted Sister. He told this great story about how once he became a big star, he wasn't able to go in the audience and beat up hecklers anymore. It really confided in him and he said that you know, the first time he watched part of his security team beat up a fan and the security guy said, hey, how'd that look? And Dee said, well, I guess it would be like watching someone have sex with your wife. Uh, <laughs> It might look good, but it certainly doesn't feel the same. So, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> so we <laughs> thank you. We left the hospital, and uh, when I drove D home, you know, uh, he, he just asked if I could, you know, stop briefly at his favorite bakery so he could bring hot muffins home for the Snyder clan. And then, uh, and, and then when we stopped at the driveway, he kind of kind of punched me in the shoulder and said, hey, thanks, bro, you know, and he got out and he started walking away. And then he, I saw him stop, you know, and he kind of like turned around and he put out his hand, you know, like, hey, stop for a second. He kind of walked over, he had his head down. Like he wasn't full of life and confidence like he usually is. So I rolled my window, to, well, actually I pressed a button and the window went down, but I didn't roll it down. And he started like stammering and he goes, um, uh, uh, just like to thank you for making me a better man. And then he walked away, and I thought, holy crap. <laughs> like, man, I'm not, I'm not just a guy who was a three-time WWE champion, right? Not just a two-time New York Times number one best-selling author. <laughs> not just a guy who's been interviewed twice by Katie Couric. <laughs> not just a guy who has Molina on speed dial. And Christy Canyon, I made Dee Schneider a better man. Pretty cool, right? All right, all right. I thought you'd like that. And all right, do you want me, you want me, you, you, some of you were involved in politics? Yeah, because you cheered when I made the joke about Rush Limbaugh? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, 
Oh, no one wants to raise their hand, but uh, yeah, yeah, okay. All right, okay. Uh, do you know who Paul Wolfowitz is? Yes. Ah, okay. You want to hear a story about Paul Wolfowitz? Yeah. All right. You want to hear it if it's a flattering story? No. no? All right, all right. <laughs> I'm going to tell this story, and you can be the judge, all right? I was, uh, I was late to this ceremony at Walter Reed Army Medical Center where they were uh, breaking ground on a new amputee wing to the hospital. And this is like a week before they decided that the hospital was going to be shut down, which... <laughs> I, here I am at the groundbreaking ceremony a week later, they're shutting it down. And that's probably what led to a lot of the problems you see in the, you know, in the, the paper and on the news is that they started neglecting it after that point. And uh, you saw some of the problems they had with the outpatients. But they had this seat of honor there for me. I was like in the second row and one of the four-star generals mentioned my name because I've, uh, I've been a pretty regular, regular visit to Washington to go to the Army and uh, Navy hospitals there. Um, and I, so I, it's always flattering to be brought up in those type of circles, but I, all of a sudden I see, sitting in front of me, I see this figure like I know from TV, and I'm like, oh no, it's, that's Wolfowitz. You know, God, like he was the guy I hated more than anybody in that administration. <laughs> Besides Cheney. Uh, <laughs> And I was trying to think, well, what do I do if I'm introduced to this guy? You know, I'm a real, I'm a believer in being honest, but at the same time, you don't want to be disrespectful, you know, especially if you're there as a guest. And I realized that if I were to reach up and say, it's nice to meet you, that I would, in a sense, be lying, right? You can't do that. I mean, what do you say? You always say, it's nice to meet you, whether it's nice. I've been saying the same thing to Vince for 10 years. <laughs> I'm telling lies for 10 years. Uh, and I thought, okay, what if I say, hello, even though he's a doctor, I didn't know that, I guess. Hello, Mr. Wolfowitz, how are you? I know the troops appreciate your support. Not bad, right? Okay. I got out of that particular instance without meeting Wolfowitz, but later that night they had a dinner for some of the uh, wounded service members and their families. And I remember when I was going around to occupational therapy, where you see the guys, you know, trying out their new prosthetic limbs. And uh, I was asking people, hey, you're going to be at the dinner tonight? And, oh, yeah, are you going? I said, oh, yeah, I'm going. And I envisioned a table like this size, but like an oak table in the back that sat maybe 12 people. And then when I got there, I, uh, it dawned on me, yeah, there's far too many injured troops to be sitting around a table. I mean, there was a couple hundred people there. And I, all of a sudden, off in the distance, I see Wolfowitz, you know? And I brought a friend of mine who'd kind of felt detached from the war and had only seen it on the news. And when I told him that I passed by Baltimore every, almost every month but didn't see him, I said, hey, would you maybe like to come to this dinner with me? And so he jumped at the chance. And uh, so I, got out of, I had gotten out of that Wolfowitz thing. I saw him there. I was kind of walking around. I'd brought some T-shirts. I'd brought some of my uh, children's book, Tales from Resco Lane. And uh, I was introduced to Mark Bowden the writer um, uh, with, from Black Hawk Down. Uh, that was probably his most famous book, but he's a really respected political journalist. And, uh, and he said hello, and I, and I looked over at Wolfowitz, and I said, oh, God, I hate that guy. And he said, oh, I'm here with him. I said, oh, I probably shouldn't include that in the article. And he said, yeah, I'm not here to write a, you know, it's not a anti or pro Wolfowitz piece. I just think people should better understand a very polarizing figure. I said, that's probably true, and then I got up to do something else, and then there was a tap on my shoulder, and a guy says, uh, Mick, uh, he's the proprietor, I turn around, it's the proprietor of the restaurant, and he says, there's somebody I'd like to meet, 
And I turned around and there he was. <laughs> Wolfowitz. <laughs> and I stuck out my hand and I said, hello, Mr. Wolfowitz, how are you? I know the troops appreciate your support. And Wolfowitz tried to make a joke about one of the WWE divas. And in doing so, let out a blast of bad breath that would have killed a lesser man. <laughs> oh, man. And the, and the joke wasn't funny. I you know, surmise that humor wasn't his strong point. Neither was foreign policy, for that matter. But I, uh, but I, but I got out of it. You know, I said a couple words to him. And I didn't tell a single lie. And then I went back to my table where Gary Trudeau, the guy from Doonesbury, any of you read Doonesbury? He was there and he goes, geez, how did that go? And I said, well, what I tried to do is I tried to be polite without actually, you know, telling a lie. He said, how'd you do that? I said, I gave him my theory about, hello, how are you? I know the troops appreciate your support. And at that moment, a guy comes over and he says, uh, Mr. Trudeau, would you like to meet uh, Dr. Wolfowitz? And he said, you know, I'm gonna take a pass. <laughs> and if he's read my strip, he'll probably take a pass on meeting me as well. I went back to doing something else, and all of a sudden there's this big commotion, there's flash bulbs going off everywhere, and I turn around, and there's Wolfowitz and Trudeau shaking hands like they're at some type of peace summit, you know, and it goes on for like 15 seconds, and then just as soon as it started, it's gone, boom. Wolfowitz goes back, raising hell at the bar. Not really. <laughs> and Trudeau comes over, and, he, and I said, how did that go, Gary? He says, well, Mick, I took your advice. I tried to be, tried to be you know, honest without uh, being disrespectful. And later that night as we're driving home, uh, my friend starts laughing and he, I said, what's wrong? He said, that was just so surreal. I said, what's that? He goes, Gary Trudeau is telling my friend, he took his advice on how to speak to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. You know, kind of a cool thing. Now, a year goes by and just a couple months ago, uh, I'm going to a similar dinner and someone tells me that Wolfowitz is supposed to be there. I said, oh crap, like, oh, you know, now I know this book is gonna be published in a couple months and I'm gonna talk about his bad breath and his lack of humor and all those things. And, uh, and, I, and I sat down and I tried, I tried not to draw any attention because I didn't want him to recognize me, you know. And I, oh, so the dinner ends and I'm just, I'm trying to get out of the building, you know, like without him seeing me. And I see him coming out, going out of his way to come up to me. And I finally turn, you know, he goes, are, are Mick Foley? Like he asked me my name and I said, uh, yes, sir, Dr. Wolfowitz, how are you? <laughs> and, uh, and he, and he, and, uh, he starts talking to me and I said, so how are things at the World Bank? He's the president of the World Bank now, which means you know, even though he was one of the, uh, you know, the architects of the Iraq uh, invasion, you know, he could conceivably be more considered more important as president of the World Bank. So I said, so how, how are things at the World Bank? I'm running out of things, ways to be polite without lying. And he goes, oh, if you thought that Pentagon was full of bureaucrats, you ought to see trying to get done, something done in the, the uh, you know, in the, in the bank. And, and I said, you know, I said, uh, outside of what I do with the troops, that's kind of a passion I have. And he says, oh, what's that? I said, well, you know, I sponsor, you know, you know seven kids around the, the world. And he goes, oh, really? What country? And I said, well, I've got a girl I'm pretty close to in the Philippines and a couple in Mexico and one in Sri Lanka and this beautiful kid I just started sponsoring from Sierra Leone. He goes, oh, that Sierra Leone's a tough place. 
And so all of a sudden now I'm talking about the diamond smuggling trade in Sierra Leone with the head of the World Bank. <laughs> and, it, and I'm thinking, maybe I can't stand this guy, but none of my friends at home give a crap about the kids I sponsor, you know? And I start getting like little goosebumps, you know? Like, and, I'm go, and I'm thinking, no, don't do this, don't do this. is like equivalent in a different type of way of when you go to see like the physician to give you the physical for your sports teams <laughs> and you look down and never mind, never mind. <laughs> there's nothing there it's no, nothing there. I'll get into that subject in a couple minutes but uh, I was fighting my body like no don't do this you know goosebumps means that this is important to you you know and you're talking to the member of the World Bank and I finally just said you know Dr. Wolfowitz I've never really liked you and it felt so good to say that and he said oh, well, why not? And I said, well, I said, you're a really polarizing figure and you come across in the media a certain way. And, and then I, I talked to the guy for like 30 minutes and I left and it was such a contrast in feelings. Because on one hand, I was like, man, I still hate that guy, but wow, I really enjoyed talking to him, you know? <laughs> and I woke up the next morning and my wife sees me and I, and I felt like I had a hangover. And, and I said, oh no, I can't believe what I did last night. She says, what did you do? I said, I, said, I talked to Paul Wolfowitz. And she goes, you hate that guy, don't you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I feel so guilty. And she said, why? I said, because I really enjoyed it. So, so I called up my editor and I was like, uh, how many days until the book goes to print? She said, one. I said, can you put a footnote in there? So if anyone has the book, there is a little footnote that said, I had another dinner with Wolfie technically my third. And I said, not only was his breath minty fresh, but I thoroughly enjoyed our, you know, our conversation. So I try to call it like I see it, you know? I don't mean to let, send you guys off on a sour note telling a positive, uplifting story about Paul Wolfowitz, which is why, how many, what time is it, Sam? 10 minutes. 10 minutes, that's it? That's it. All right, okay. All right, we're gonna have to hope for a couple good questions and we'll try to send you off on a high note. All right, questions? Maybe like, Five, race. All right, those, all right, you know, those four guys, that'll be it. I'm sorry, those, just those four, okay? Hi. Um, if you were starting a wrestling promotion now, and you could pick one wrestler to be the, the main star of all wrestlers that you've met uh, in any promotion, WWE or otherwise, who would you pick and why? Hmm, I think I'd pick Al Snow second. <laughs> Everyone else? for first. No, I would, uh, I'd probably pick Edge, because Edge, I think, still has a few years in his absolute prime, and he's at the absolute top of his game as far as being the biggest jerk to ever, you know, set foot in the ring. Like, he's just really, really good at it, and he brings out the best in other people, and he doesn't shy away from being hated, which most people do. I, I did myself when I was a bad guy. I deep down wanted to be liked. He doesn't want to be liked. If someone cheers him, he considers that an insult. So I would pick Edge to be my leading guy in a new promotion. All right? Okay. Yes, sir. Just so I know, before I ask my real question, Mick's not your real name. What's your name? I know the winning Survivor Series in Montreal. Brett Butts. The next night, you boycotted Raw. Yeah. And um, my question to you is, I mean, that was a courageous and no more gesture on your part, but you were risking your, if I'm done, this is your living, and you right. off, so how did you manage to 
A, get that information within a day and decide that, you know what, I'm, this, this is the right thing. Okay, what he's talking about is uh, the Brett's, Bret Hart. Anyone know if I say to the Montreal screw job, you know what I'm talking about? For those of you who don't, is uh, Brett was wrestling in Montreal in the moment that Shawn Michaels put him into a move called the sharpshooter. The referee rang the bell and they stripped Brett of the title without him knowing it was going to happen. And uh, it was a pretty, pretty weird episode with uh, Brett ended up drilling the owner, Vince McMahon. Uh, and, uh, you know, wrestlers vowing not to work there anymore. And uh, essentially, when I was in my room in Montreal the next night, uh, watching Raw, it became pretty obvious to me that I was the only one boycotting Raw. <laughs> and uh, you know how they say there's strength in numbers? So I was not dealing from a position of any kind of strength. And I also realized that I just signed a contract and that if I were to, uh, no, you know, if I were to quit, I'd be breaching my contract. And as a father with two kids, I'd be, you know, in, in a position where I couldn't make a living for like four years. And uh, so I think I called Jim Ross. Jim Ross had talked to me for a long time the night before. And when I, call, when I called my wife the night before to tell her I was quitting, I, uh, I hung up the phone. I saw the red light flashing. And when I checked my message, it was Vince. And apparently Vince thought enough of my quitting to call me that night. Uh, and so I, I, JR told me if I came back the next night that they would not be held against me. And I guess some of the guys respected me for what I did, and I know it uh, made a difference to Brett and his, uh, and his family. Like, they still thought that was a good thing to do. It would, I guess, you know, who knows what would have happened if six or seven other guys stayed home. But, uh, you know, that, was, uh, that, that didn't happen. All right, thank you. Um, my question is, is there a time like in the future where you think that you're not going to want to be asked wrestling questions anymore and you're just kind of tired of it and you just don't want to talk about it anymore? Because it seems like you take a lot more joy in talking about the really things you do, like going to the hot meat and wolf and, you know, you're a better man. Do you just kind of get tired of all the wrestling questions, the same questions over and over? And like well, you know, in one sense, I do feel like I'm in a never-ending episode of Groundhog's Day. Uh, there's only so many ways you can talk about Hell in a Cell, you know, uh, before, you know, it's, uh, there's only so many ways I could do it. I mean, if, still, if I were to talk about it thoroughly, uh, it is enjoyable. You know, like I, one of the younger wrestlers asked me about it uh, at WrestleMania weekend, and I did, you know, get interested in telling that story. But at the same time, I understand that everything I do has to be told within a wrestling context, you know, because I did do things that didn't involve wrestling, you know, with the novels, and uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of interest. So I began to realize that it might not be the worst thing to be, you know, uh, known as a wrestler, especially if I thought, saw ways that it could help me, you know, in doing some of the things I do with kids. And really what's nice about this resurgence they've had in the past several months is that if I'm part of it, it kind of makes me relevant to a whole new generation of kids. Because it's been, like I said, seven years, in the last seven years, I've had eight matches. And I would have guessed that I would have been relevant for like a year or two. You know, so I went and visited a lot of camps and I talked to a lot of schools in those first two years. So at the same time, it's a little bit frustrating that I haven't really been able to break out of that, you know, that wrestler mold. Uh, I understand that as long as people are asking me about Hell in a Cell, 
I probably don't have to get a real job. You know what I mean? So, uh, I, and, and I was thinking, like, yeah, do I really want to be part of this new wrestling, you know, craze? Because I remember what it was like in 2000 when it was really kind of overwhelming and I have to kind of put my head down when I walked and hope that people didn't recognize me because it was like being a rock and roll star without the trappings, you know, without the security and the limos and all that. You were like, yeah, everyone knows you and you're on your own. And it, was, and it was kind of overwhelming. And I thought, thank God I got through that and don't have to go through that again. But it's looking like guys, maybe more so like, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, John Cena and Batista and guys like that are going to be going through that all over again. But it makes everyone seem more important by comparison. So that even though, for example, you know, the WWE didn't do a lot to promote my book, the fact that it still was on the bestseller list for four years and the fact that there were still people online you know to see me is is probably indicative of a wrestling craze that's uh, currently going on so I uh, given my choice between taking part in it and having the hassles that go along with it and having it completely ignore me I'll take part in it and uh, deal with the hassles that go along with it I just got one more if you could be asked any question by anybody like you just got Chance to talk about it. Yeah. Like, it wasn't you had to talk about wrestling, but just any question you could get asked that you get asked, what would you want oh, to ask? Oh man, I'm dying for Ariel to ask me a certain question. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I thought for a second Wolfowitz was going to ask me if I wanted to work for him at the World Bank, and I didn't know what I would say. But I don't know. I, I, I do get asked a lot of interesting questions, and I can't think of one specific one that I would love to be asked about. But I do notice um, uh, that, for example, when I, and I apologize that I taught, said this to uh, uh, a few uh, students yesterday, that when I worked with Willem Dafoe on a film, I made sure that I went in and checked out my history of film encyclopedia the night before I went, so that when I met him, I didn't say, oh, what was it like to be in Spider-Man? But I said, uh, yeah, hello, Mr. Defoe, and you know, I'm going to be doing this thing with you. And then when we sat down and we're waiting for a take, I said, so did you have to train a lot uh, for uh, Triumph of the Spirit, in which he played a, uh, a uh, concentration camp boxer in Auschwitz? And that's not a question he gets asked a lot. So he was really interested in talking to me about it. And I said, did you have to get into character? when you were doing Shadow of the Vampire? I mean, that was so believable, you know? And so I was asking all the right questions. So, in other words, if you want, if you meet a wrestler or an actor or anybody that you're interested in talking to, ask them a question they don't usually get about something they'd be interested in, okay? Like, if you pretended to be interested in one of my novels, you'd, you'd have a new best friend right away. Yeah. <laughs> all right, thanks. All right, and the last question here. Well, they're only mediocre if the build-up to them isn't good. You know, like some of the best pay-per-views I've been a part of were those mediocre pay-per-views. Uh, and I always felt like I had more room to stand out because other people, they weren't going to be focusing for six months on who would be in those. But I, with that being said, I do think it's too many. Like, I think five or six would be good. Uh, but, uh, you know, I remember when I was in WCW, I believe it was, was it WWE who jumped to 12 and then WCW had to follow suit? They each went from having five to having 12. So all of a sudden there was 24. And that's before the influx of, 
you know, mixed martial art bouts, and, uh, and of course there's always been boxing. So it is flooded, and uh, maybe over time they'll go back to five or six. And the, the, reason, the only reason I hope that doesn't happen is because there's only so many good payoffs go, to go around, and you want to see some of the, the middle wrestlers, uh, you know, have a shot at getting good payoffs as well. All right? We have, what, five minutes? All right, can I tell a quick story to send everybody home happy? All right? Like, if there was a greatest hit I have, although these kids are going to prevent me from telling it in its entirety, not really, I've got to tell it. Uh, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll give you the short version, because this is my Montreal suplex story. Anyone know the story? It's a perennial favorite. My favorite to tell is it makes Al Snow look really bad. And uh, it deals with a time, uh, I'll just go, I'll go right to Montreal. There was a buildup concerning Bob Holly, the world's most miserable man, and him attempting to get me to stop playing Christmas music in October, which I thought was completely unacceptable. Uh, but we were in uh, the Montreal, it used to be called the Forum, I don't know what the name of it is now, in uh, November. So it's kind of chilly, November, I believe this is November 1999. At the time, my body was really falling apart. My, my knees were bad, I couldn't move around too well. It would only be a few months before I uh, re retired for good. But it's, at the same time, there were 18,000 fans out there. All these shows were sold out. So you wanted to come up with something interesting without, without actually hurting yourself too bad in front of the fans. So I'm trying to think of something I can do in this eight cor four corner, eight man tag team match. Four teams in there. I believe it was Bob and Crash Holly against me and Al Snow against the Dudley Brothers against the Acolytes. I think, what the heck am I going to do in here? And all of a sudden, I see Al changing. And I see Al's putting on his wrestling singlet. And he's not wearing like any underwear or any kind of jock or anything underneath that. And I said, Al, you don't wear underwear? He goes, no, it shows lines on TV. <laughs> First of all, how stupid does that sound? And second of all, we weren't even on TV. It was a, a house show. So, so really, you don't wear anything, no, no. Oh, well, that's interesting. And then I get this idea, and I said to Bob, I said, Bob, come over here. And I start talking to Bob, and Al goes, what are you guys doing? He said, nothing. I, I know you're up to something. I said, no, I'm not. He goes, I know you are. I said, no, I'm not. We were up to something. So we got out in that arena, you know, and I did a couple things. You know, I, uh, you know, I tied up with... Uh, crash, I did a couple moves, and uh, you know, I hip-tossed him in his corner, he tags in Bob, and I tag in Al. And Al, at that point, he was doing this thing where he was supposed to be crazy, and it had Help Me written across his head in black magic marker, you know. Like, look at me, I'm crazy, you know. <laughs> like everything Al did, it was stupid, you know. <laughs> it should have said lamb being led to slaughter, because that's essentially what Al was. And he got out there like to tie up, and he didn't even know what was going on. And Bob kicked him in the stomach as hard as he could. Boom! Which doesn't necessarily mean anything, because that's how Bob kicks everybody. You know, people <laughs> get out of a wrestling match with Bob, and they're dying to get in a street fight, just for the safety and comfort of it. And then Al, then Bob goes to tie up Al. Oops, sorry. In a suplex, you know. And you know, there's there's two ways to give a suplex, right? You can do it like the strong guy way, like Bob, you know, where you lift him straight up in the air. Or else you can do it like the weak, non-athletic guys do, like me, where you just kind of go, <laughs> you kind of go him on the side. 
so Bob decides he's going to suplex Al straight up, like the classic style. But before he goes for the suplex, he added a little something different into the night's agenda. He took Al's singlet, which as you recall, did not have underwear underneath it. And he took the singlet from this side and pulled it to this side. <laughs> so therefore, when he suplexed Al, he was exposing him to the mid-November hockey arena, <laughs> chilly air. And it would have been a one thing if he just held him up like this, but he didn't do that. He started doing a little bit of this. <laughs> so, and Al was trying to like pull his singlet, he's trying to pull his singlet back over, but uh, Bob had a grip on his hand and Bob, you know, he, he, he had like that incredible strength, you know, no offense to anybody, but it's known as like retard strength, you know, like, can't really explain it. And, and I, there was, and, and unfortunately for Al, you know, like the singlet, it, it acts as a way to protect the guys, you know, the guys I'm talking about, right, the guys I referred to. But it doesn't do a lot to showcase the male anatomy in a very flattering way, which is why, like, if you're like me and you played, uh, you know, high school sports, that you would look around and make sure no one was noticing, and then you'd kind of give a little tug, you know, to free it from its childlike state, you know. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately for Al, there was really no way to get that tug into the, to the night. And also, unfortunately for Al, like he, didn't, he didn't take part in this rather new male thing of grooming. You know, if any of you have ever watched a 70s porno, you might know what I'm talking about. You've watched 70s porno? Okay. So, just kidding. So therefore, taking into consideration the lack of grooming combined with the brisk November hockey arena Canadian air, there had been significant shrinkage. <laughs> and I saw what appeared to be a little tiny sparrow's egg. peeking out of a nasty vulture's nest. <laughs> and I thought, man, this should have been one of the great moments of my career. Like, Al Snow, and people were taking pictures and everything. <laughs> should have been uh, one of the great moments of my career, like the, the ultimate embarrassment and humiliation of Al Snow. Uh, and I guess, you know, I had a crisis in conscience over in the corner because I realized, A, ah, this isn't really what one friend should be doing to another, and B, um, I'm not sure I would have looked a whole lot better in that same situation. And Al, to his great credit, when he finally hit the ground, he started laughing. He went, <laughs> and then he, you know, he pulled the singlet over. I just thought, man, this poor guy, you know. He may be laughing now, but if he had seen what I just saw, <laughs> there would have been no laughter, believe me. Well, that's, that's it. That's the story. I hope uh, you got a little something out of the talk and uh, appreciate your questions. And it uh, really was uh, an honor to be out here in front of you uh, for free.
So whether or not that uh, makes you look on me better, the fact that I came all the way to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.